Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are discussing a paper called Informed Horses Are Influential in Group Movements, But They May Avoid Leaving, Leading. And this is by Julie Andrew um, et al. And this is one of three great papers that was suggested to us by a listener on Instagram. So thank you to Genuine Equine. Um, and this is in response to an episode that we actually had aired a couple of weeks ago on um, dominance and herd uh, dynamics. So we're focusing on herd dynamics, but I think one of the areas that we just need to kind of narrow in on a little bit more is the terminology we used. So it was pointed out that terminology such as hierarchies and dominance and alpha are less used more so now in science. Um, that dominant or that herd hierarchy paper was a relatively new paper, but particularly to point out that those terms are outdated when we talk about the human horse dyad. So there's no real room for um, using those terms in what role we play with horses, because we certainly don't play a dominant role. We're not alphas in any way. Um, and horses can't marry that concept between us and them either. So there is another paper that we will discuss in future, kind of delving more into the human-horse interaction. But for today, we're going to just look at herd dynamics a little bit more, because one of these papers was really great. And it was talking about the influence horses can have on each other and how those kinds of relationships build in groups. And this is a 2015 paper. And in it, they basically take groups of horses and they release them. I just think it was such a great experiment and setup where they release them into a field and there is a really palatable food source in multiple areas of the field. So enough for one for each horse. But one horse knows where the food is in advance. And then there's a control horse that has no idea. So leading up to letting them into the field, what they do is they bring one horse and they feed them a little bit of the palatable food in the area where the horse can find that food. Then they bring the horse out of the field again. The controlled horse is brought into the field, but it's brought to an area that doesn't have any palatable food. So they want to see if the herd is going to follow a specific horse. And what they found is that Occasionally, the herd do follow specific horses, but what was interesting was the horse that knew where the food was, if they were um, less, I suppose, like in some of the behaviors they pointed out, they were less confident a lot of the time in walking towards the source. But if they were essentially a lower ranking um, horse, the herd followed them less, so they were less likely to bring other horses to that food source but if they were more influential 
within the herd, the herd were more likely to follow them to the source. And I thought that was a fantastic way to look at horse communication because horses will signal to each other. And there are occasions where horses did follow the less influential horses. And obviously they're taking those cues and taking that signaling. I think they call them ranking in this study. So higher ranking or lower ranking individuals. But overall, that was the results that if they were lower ranking, they're less likely to influence their group mates. So I think when it comes to horse herd dynamics, that really stood out to me because as well within these dynamic groups, they were in stables. I don't know, Nancy, do you remember the ins and outs of this? But there were only two horses in each group. So four in total that were actually related. There was one father and son and one mother and daughter. But other than that, these were kind of constructed herds within a riding school. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I thought this was um, kind of along the lines of what we said in that episode. And what happened is we had had a listener, uh, Barb Campbell, and I don't know if you guys remember or not, but she has a gelding that's always been turned out with um, a mixed herd of geldings and mares. Well, she had to go to a new boarding facility and they separate their geldings from the mares. So there's a mare herd and a gelding herd. And she had requested us to talk about research that um, kind of dealt with herd composition. So the paper we referenced in that episode was the significance of group composition for the welfare of pastured horses. And the paper actually concluded that mixed herds were uh, the most desired because then you see a lot of the natural ethology come out with the horses. And, um, you know, but what I had said at the end of the episode was that you've it's individual because sometimes you have very aggressive horses and it's up to that barn manager what they want to do. So it's, you know, when you go into a boarding situation, you kind of have to find out ahead of time, you know, why they maybe don't mix a herd. Now, it was me using the alpha term during that episode because I have my 25-year-old chestnut thoroughbred, and to me, she is an alpha. I mean, I think, according to Paul McGreevy, sometimes the alpha term implies, like, non-negotiable and permanent status, I don't necessarily use it in that way because to me, she's the oldest member of my herd. And, um, you know, she, I kind of see within my closed herd here that leadership is shared and that leadership is not linear. It is kind of more horizontal and it, it is for different circumstances. So the lowest member in my herd is the largest horse. So we know size doesn't really matter. She's also the second oldest. She's 21. But when there's a novel object in the pasture, say it's a balloon that's blowing across the pasture, 
she's the leader in that instance because she will be the first one to go and pursue what's going on here and the others will lay back. So I do believe alpha is the wrong term and I'll have to be more careful about using that um, because I just kind of always give it to the oldest horse, but I'll try and not do that any longer. I think personality does play such a big role. Like, you know, we can look at all the science and there is just that element where, and it is possible to quantify and look into personality traits as well. But it it is, especially when we're thinking about like that idea of mixing herds, uh, it must be something that's really stressful for a barn manager to try and tackle because, I mean, if none of them are your horses, I can only imagine the pressure to not put together a herd where, you know, you come out and one horse has been injured. And unfortunately, I have seen that before at a rising school where one horse just got kicked so badly and he was absolutely beat up. Um, and that was the only time I've ever seen that. Like, luckily, never saw any kind of scenario like that again. It was, we believe it was the mayors that actually turned on him. Um, <laughs> but it was just, I think it was a bit of his personality too, but they didn't mesh. And it's it's so it's such a tricky thing like it really is to try and get that right when these are people's like prized and um, pets like and they cost so much money as well in certain instances depending on what the horses are used for so definitely a tricky situation but obviously the mixed groups are best I think there definitely are I suppose like in elephants they use the term matriarchs I think a lot of the time these terms are really for our human brains to try and grasp a concept more so than um, anything to do with what's actually occurring necessarily in the herd. And I think that's a great point that that listener who brought it to our attention pointed out. She was saying, you know, like these concepts are they're human concepts and they're human constructs and we're basically trying to throw words onto a situation to describe it. And I think that's okay too. Like we're trying to navigate our way around it, but I think that's an interesting theory when you get into it because horse relationships really are very fluid. And like you said, you have some personalities that will be braver than others. And that doesn't mean they're going to be the higher ranking individuals every time. So like that novel instance in the fields where there might be a balloon or a plastic bag. And that doesn't mean the highest ranking individual is going to approach that necessarily. But it's interesting that your other mayor who's second oldest does, because sometimes um, from papers you read that it's the younger, kind of more playful horses that'll maybe be like, oh, you know, I'm going to investigate this more so than the older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's the bottom, always the horse that follows. She never leads other than that situation. So I think that it's a um, group movement, like this paper says. And whether you're moving from forage or a watering hole to shelter, 
um, I think there's a lot of studies out there and Paul McGreevy lists them in his uh, latest edition of Equitation Science. They suggest that leadership is not unique to the highest ranked or oldest herd member. Any horse in the group can act as a leader in a given situation. And I do see that with my little closed herd that at times, um, you know, it's not always the same individual that comes in first. Um, mm -hmm. it, just the way it is, they kind of have their um, horizontal leadership exchanges. So, but I tell you, my 25 year old chestnut, she's always going to be the matriarch to me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to note as well, actually, what they found in this study was that um, while the more higher ranking individuals were followed, um, to the food source quicker or by more herd members than the lower ranking. In general, the horses that knew where the location of the food was were followed um, by a larger number of group members compared to the controlled horse. So the controlled horse is going to go out into the pasture and just start moving around and grazing. They weren't followed. The ones that had the information were. So that, again just drives home that they are sharing this information. They do live in a herd for these kinds of reasons. They rely on these dynamics of herd members being able to pass on important survival information. And what I thought was really interesting about this paper was to determine what was a palatable food source for each group. They tested them with different food to see what the highest number of horses in that group were most drawn to. So I think it was groups one, three, and four got carrots and something else mixed in. It was maybe some other vegetable. But group two really loved soya and oats. So that's what they got when they went out to the fields. And I just thought those little touches, like make it really high value, the treat, to really try and stimulate it. And the horses couldn't see the food. So when they first come out to pasture, that food's not visible from 10 meters away. So it's not like the first horse starts walking towards it, the rest of the herd look over and they're like, oh, there's food over there. It wasn't visible. They had to follow the horse with the information to be able to get to it. And what was interesting too about this is I'd mentioned previously about how the um, the individuals who weren't followed kind of used more indirect paths, almost like there was less confidence. But these are the individuals that were traveling alone to the feeding site, um, more so than the ones that were followed, the informed horses that were followed kind of walked directly to the leading site. They're leading everyone there. But it's almost as if these ones that aren't being followed are like, well, I'll take my time going over there and keep it to myself. But what they found in this study is that it's not possible for the horses to actually withhold this information from each other because they said if the horses were able to withhold the information, then subordinate individuals would have traveled alone every time and would have performed behaviors that aimed to avoid leading other horses to the feeding site. But all the horses, even the low ranking ones who were the ones that ended up more often traveling alone, um, carried out the same behaviors in the sense that they were making it clear that they were traveling to the site. And then 
they didn't take the most confident path. That might have something to do with moving away from the herd. And there's other elements to it, but it's it's so interesting. And there's areas then within this research as well where they're saying, you know, there's room for further development on it and to kind of look into these dynamics more closely. But it does, and it opens up kind of the idea that we would have had even like 10 years ago, you know? And I think that's such a beautiful thing about this research being carried out because I'm sure there's, you know, lots of people that wouldn't necessarily see the benefit in carrying out these research papers. But if you're interested in horses and you have a passion for horses and you own them or you have groups of horses together, this kind of information is really important for you to understand too and be able to work out how to mix your herds and what the dynamics actually are and to understand that what where your role kind of fits into that as well. Um, more often just as an observer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than uh, having a herd that one is constantly getting beat up or cornered or um, missing out on hay, especially in the wintertime and, and things like that. So this is really interesting that it was a steady progression out to the feeding area. It wasn't like any of them ran out there. You know, mm -hmm. it was horizontal head and neck, a steady walk out there. So they, even the, um, what I guess would be considered the uninformed and the informed had the same steady walk. So I don't know, my pony would probably run out if she thought food. <laughs> oh, <laughs> especially carrots or whatever, you know. But anyway, yeah, this was a, a good paper, Kate, and thanks for recommending it and for handling the emails that, that came with this. No problem. And we will cover, because um, that listener, so that's Genuine Equine on Instagram, has sent a couple of really great papers to us. So we will cover um, the horse-human interaction when it comes to dominance and leadership in an upcoming episode as well. So stay tuned for that. And then Nancy, you had some feedback on um, Rich Strike, the episode we had last week. Yes, I had a group from Australia. Uh, Daniela uh, was messaging me about they took a still shot of um, Rich Strike with his groom and they were concerned about that he seemed to be exhibiting um, Oh, facial expressions that would have been on the grimace scale, so indicating there was some pain. However, when I did look at the photo, I, I told them, you know, he had a lip chain on, and it's best to interpret that grimace scale um, when they're in the stall without even a halter on. So you get, can determine, because a lip chain, I mean, a lot of them will play with their tongue and they'll be mouth gaping um, just due to the lip chain. So they were so nice to engage with and to discuss, um, you know, why we use lip chains in racing. And a lot of times it's so a horse doesn't injure themselves when they're out of their stall. It's you don't want a loose horse 
in the barn area. They can just get into so much trouble. But, um, you know, he's uh, he seems to be, um, you know, every photo that they had, he had either a bit in his mouth or a lip chain. So um, I referred them to the International Society of Equitation Science where they um, had a paper last summer. And I think Kate presented it on the podcast where even a halter seemed to make the grimace um, scale. There was an interpretation for that. So anyway, um, it was great to hear from them and that they're listening to us and that they enjoy the podcast. So, and we love the engagement, um, the engagement on me using the alpha term. I appreciate that pointing that out to me because, you know, I'll be more cautious about doing that. Absolutely. Like yeah. Nancy and I far from know everything and never will. So well, we uh, really appreciate when people do bring research to us or even just to have these conversations, I think is really important because we are constantly learning. Yeah. And I've been in racing 25 years. I mean, we used the term alpha 25 years ago, and it's hard to sometimes break out of that verbiage that you're so accustomed to. And uh, I'll have to watch myself from now on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was great. Did you vent an ask, Nancy? Um, our survey uh, is at the end. We have a few more days, I think, till the end of May. So if you haven't taken it, I'll put a link on the homepage. I'll put the link of uh, the paper we discussed today. And um, I we may have a guest that has been um, editing papers on horse fallacies and what the research shows. So we're going to try and get an interview with her so she can talk about uh, her update on her published research. So uh, we'll see where that leads us. And I think that's it, Kate. We had good feedback on the Spotify Live. So maybe we'll try and do that maybe once a month or something like that. Fab. Lots of stuff to look forward to. Okay, well, thanks so much, Kate. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.